as they say down south, or you guys, as we're used to saying here. Um, let, it's so good to be back with you, uh, my wife Therese and I. Uh, I just wanted to just briefly um, reacquaint you with some of the connections we have. Uh, I became a Christian in 1976 at Boston College through the Ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. I come from a Catholic background, and it was quite a, a revolutionary experience for me to come to faith. Um, so Boston is a very special place for me. Uh, I met my wife here in Boston. So uh, we, we feel uh, in a lot of ways we're, we're back home. Uh, we had, um, I had lived 10 years in the Boston area off and on a couple different times. Uh, when we were here last 25 years ago, uh, we were at uh, Grace Chapel, where um, I know uh, lots have come from here. So uh, that's some of our connections, and we are so grateful to be part of your family uh, and have you send us out. What we're going to do this morning, we have a brief video, about eight minutes. We're going to show you, kind of give you the sights and sounds of our work, and then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the need that we see for theological education, for deepening the gospel in Africa, um, talk about what we're doing to try to try to help with that. And then uh, I know we'll have time at the end if there's some questions that we can answer. Uh, that'll be great. So that's how we'll proceed. Let me start with our video. student body reflects the cultural diversity within South Africa and international students as well. The faculty has both South African and international professors with a Zimbabwean president. I'm a part-time professor at the Bible Institute teaching primarily New Testament but also a variety of other courses as needed. BI has a real family feel with small classes and great opportunity to interact with faculty. I also preach at BI's chapel about twice a semester. Here's what one of our students has to say about the Bible Institute. My life at BI has been tremendous. I've been taught 
the depth of the word of the Lord. And I've seen that, that the word of the Lord is sufficient for everything when it comes to ministry. I'm so grateful to the Lord for that opportunity because now I know that I am insufficient, but the word of the Lord is sufficient. The eye has offered me that great opportunity to see life in ministry through the word of God. And that has been my greatest highlight at DI. I attend Tim's classes and use these times to get to know the students. I love spending time with the ladies studying at the Bible Institute. I help organize a ladies fellowship where we have guest speakers and celebrate special events. Our home is a place of hospitality to students and their families. Another ministry I help with is a monthly craft workshop held at our church. It offers personal instruction in handcrafts primarily to underprivileged people who live in the nearby Masipumalele Township. I have the privilege to share a devotional from God's Word, and over time, I've seen the love of Christ replacing traditional racial divides with sweet interracial friendships. Nearly half the population of Cape Town lives in the shadow of the iconic Table Mountain. They live in the non-white townships that are remnants of apartheid-era racial segregation. While there's a range of housing from regular houses with plumbing, the majority live in humble dwellings with no inside plumbing or toilets. Many are makeshift shacks. These folks endure all the social evils our American inner cities experience. Things like incredibly high unemployment, gangs, drug and alcohol abuse, grinding poverty, and rampant violence against women and children. There are many, many churches within the township, but rarely has the pastor received any meaningful biblical training. The other part of our ministry is focused on helping these pastors and churches. One way we help is through the Bible Institute's Christian Leadership Program. This is a three-year certificate program for those in church ministry. We hold evening classes mostly in local churches. I regularly teach in Cape Town's largest township, which has a million or more people in it. It's a joy each year to stand with my students who graduate from this program. Here's Bangani, one of my students, explaining why he wanted to study in the Christian Leadership Program and how it's helping him. The reason is being that uh, as a Christian, I need to be able to handle the scriptures well. That will help me in developing myself and my conduct also. Before I can say that I'll be able to preach it to someone else, it should It's been very helpful because now I can interpret uh, the scriptures uh, uh, much better than before. Before it used to be difficult, you would read the Bible through, but it's difficult to interpret it. So this, these classes has helped me to be able to interpret and to know exactly what the scriptures are actually saying. A highlight of our township ministry is a three-day pastor's conference that happens twice a year. I was recently the conference speaker and did a number of sessions in Mark's Gospel. Conferences are popular in South Africa. 
Through these conferences, we have been able to build a wider network of ministry associations, primarily in township settings. As this network widens and friendships deepen, we're offered more and more opportunities to teach God's Word. We even had the opportunity to travel to Mozambique, where I was a women's speaker at a conference and Tim led a men's workshop. But it takes more than classroom teaching and conference speaking to disciple believers. It requires a more personal approach. So I've been meeting weekly in a reading group with township pastors and church leaders. This hand-selected group is reading and discussing books about pastoral ministry. Therese has also led Bible studies and book discussions for township ladies, many who are pastors' wives. I've also had the joy of encouraging some Bible Institute graduates as they've gone on to plant a strong Bible-based church in one of the townships. Recently, I led a marriage conference for this church, and Therese spoke at a bridal shower for the woman soon to marry the young pastor. It's a privilege to speak God's Word into each setting and for the special friendships that welcome that input. Thanks for letting us share our work with you. As you can see, the needs are great here, and we can't do this apart from God's grace and His strength. And He uses you, and we're so thankful for your partnership with us in the Gospel, for your prayers, and through your financial giving. Thank you. Yeah, I hope that gives a little bit of uh, a flavor, the sights and sounds of what we're doing. Uh, what I wanted to do uh, just briefly is tell you about what we see as the needs in, in Africa. Uh, the Pew Research Center says in the next 40 years, four out of 10 Christians in the world will be from Africa. So if you take all the Christians in the world, 40% of them will be from Africa. Now, that's undoubtedly using the most generous definition of what a Christian is, uh, for those of you who know a little bit about the context. But nonetheless, just given the sheer numbers that identify themselves as Christians on that continent, missiologists are saying that the center of Christianity is going to shift from North America to Africa. So Christianity is going to be moving out from Africa. Now, we're already seeing that, because in Europe, there are over 3,000 African churches. With all the migration that is happening into Europe out of Africa, we're seeing in countries like Belgium, which basically has had almost no Christians for decades. Now, 2 to 3% of the population there is evangelical. So what kind of Christianity is getting exported from Africa? And how should we feel about it? Well, I must say for myself, I don't feel very good about it because the church in Africa is in trouble. And it's in trouble because of a lack of discipleship. So let me just give you a few examples. I was recently teaching a class in one of the townships that, that you saw up in the, in the video, and I was teaching on the book of James. 
And like I often do when I teach James, I ask some diagnostic questions to see if people understand the relationship of faith and works with respect to salvation. So basically, I'm asking them do, if they understand the gospel. And half of the classes township pastors. And when I asked the question, every single person in the class gave the wrong answer. And half the class were township pastors. So in Africa, there's a really weak understanding of the gospel. A couple months ago, one of the pastors in my reading group, who's from Congo, and he's come and settled in South Africa, he was telling a story about a, a, a conference that was happening back in Congo. And there was a Bible teacher who, brought in, uh, who was brought in, and he taught for three days. And from all I could tell, he taught well. You know, he, was, he was doing good Bible exposition. And at the end of the three days, the Congolese pastors there said to the Bible teacher, give us something fresh. Give us something fresh, which in Africa is code word for give us some new revelation. In other words, the Bible's not enough. The Bible is insufficient. We need fresh revelation. And that's what we see all over Africa. The Bible's insufficient. So should we feel good about what's coming out of Africa? I, I don't think so. Uh, another example is that we had a, a graduate of the Bible Institute who went and pastored a church in, in the township, and he was there for a couple years. And after a couple years, he was doing solid Bible exposition and applying the text and calling people in the church to believe and obey. And they fired him. Um, they, they fired him. And so the very next Sunday, the gentleman they brought in to preach in his place didn't preach the Bible at all, but he basically did an exposition of a dream that he had the night before. Because the Bible's not sufficient. And that's what we see all over Africa. We were at a church service in the township, and the gentleman who was preaching, he had his Bible open. He read a couple verses from the Bible, and then he closed the Bible. And that's the last we heard of the Bible. And he spoke for another 45 minutes. So these pastors, by and large, they don't understand the Bible, and they're not comfortable preaching it. We think of uh, an example with the country of Rwanda. Now, some of you may recall about the Rwandan genocide. 1994, over a period of 100 days, there were 800,000 Rwandans who were killed by fellow Rwandans. And in addition to that, there were all kinds of other atrocities. Now, the thing that was really a wake-up call for, for Western missionaries is that Rwanda was considered a Christian country. The statistics said that 94% of the country were Christian. Western missionaries have left Rwanda because the work is done. But how deeply do you think the gospel had penetrated in that culture? Now, there's another prime example that has been often in the, in the news in, in recent years, and it's in the country of Zimbabwe. 
Now, Zimbabwe is the country that's just north of South Africa. And in South Africa, we have 4 million Zimbabweans living. Now, there's 11 million Zimbabweans in the country of Zimbabwe, but there's 4 million in South Africa. And the reason there are 4 million in South Africa is because the unemployment rate in Zimbabwe is 95%. 95% unemployment. And the primary reason for that is because it's one of the most corrupt countries on the planet. Now, Zimbabwe is considered to be 80% Christian. And three quarters of the politicians have gone to mission schools that are considered to be Christian. So how deeply do you think the Gospels penetrated? But nonetheless, we hear all these statistics about how many are coming to faith in Africa. And yet, being on the ground, what we're seeing is a very different story. People are coming to believe in the prosperity gospel. But the real gospel, the gospel that we believe, the gospel that saved us, the gospel that transforms us, is very weakly understood and certainly not preached well. So what we're trying to do is we are working, working to try to have the gospel penetrate and to equip and train men and women in the gospel ministry through four different avenues. One is I teach at the Bible Institute of South Africa. This is a residential Bible college. And it's, it's great because we get three years to invest in people's lives. And we have seen some tremendous transformation in people's worldview, their theology, and their view of pastoral ministry from having that investment. Now, there's one gentleman, and his picture was on the screen. If I could, uh, we didn't have a picture, but kind of, I guess we could put it on here. Like, just put it on again to get it to go. Okay. There's one gentleman by the name of Sivu Larach, who was a graduate of the Bible Institute. Uh, he came to the Bible Institute several years ago. He was a, a Pentecostal uh, believer. He was really confused in his theology and, um, you know, borderline um, uh, prosperity gospel. And over the course of three years, we saw his theology change. He's become very reformed. And as a graduate, he went out with another one of our graduates and planted a, what, what appears to be a very thriving uh, reformed church in the township. But the problem is, is there are so few people who can actually take three years of their life and... That's all right. We're... <laughs> This is, this is my friend, Sivu. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> but the problem is that there's so few Africans who live in the poor townships who can actually take three years 
and come and study full-time at the Bible Institute. They can't pay for tuition, for one, and who's going to support their family? So what we have done as, at the Bible Institute is we have a program which takes our program out to the township. And this is the Christian Leadership Program, and I'm part of that. Uh, one or two nights a week, I'll go out to the townships and I'll teach a certificate-level course. And uh, we have about 100 students who are participating in that. And they're getting good teaching, but the problem is you can't change someone's theology and worldview meeting once, once a week for two or three years. Uh, it, 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 the DNA of African traditional religions, prosperity gospel, Pentecostalism on steroids is just too deep. So what I am doing when I'm out in the township is I'm fishing. And I'm looking for men, and Trez is looking for women, who are responding to the teaching so that we can take them on a decades-long journey to work toward transformation. And the third leg of what I'm doing is I have a reading group. I have a reading group of seven men. And these are seven men that I have hand-selected. And we read books together. So I hand-select the men. I hand-select the books. I buy the books. They agree to read the book and then to come and meet every week as we discuss the, the book. And so we've been doing that for a year and a half, and it's probably the best thing I've done since I've, I've been on the field. Because we are we're reading books um, of doctrine, of pastoral ministry, and we're bringing books before them that come from a reform perspective. And we're seeing some, some good changes. Um, one example would be Pastor Walter Nachwa. And uh, Walter is, uh, he, he's been in contact with MTW for a number of years. And uh, the latest thing is I've recruited him to be part of this reading group. Now, Walter has been biblical in his preaching for, for a long time. But like lots of Africans, he preaches really, really long and really, really meandering. And so we read, we read a book called Saving Eutychus. And I don't know if you remember Eutychus, Acts chapter 20. He fell out of the window because Paul was preaching yeah. past when midnight. <laughs> So this book is called Saving Eutychus. I don't know if you've, if you've heard, heard of that one. But. I might need to read it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Very true. So, so we, we read the book together, and, and he took to heart what the book said, and he really kind of tightened up his presentation. And so he's found that he finds the main point in the text. He, he illustrates it. He applies it. And then he's done. And he's had a tremendous response from his congregation. In fact, he, he, he told me that some in his congregation, they're, they're texting during the week back and forth to one another about the sermon. Never has happened before for him. So that's, that's one example. Uh, we read a book on conversion, conversion from a Reformed perspective. And one of the gentlemen in the group, Vianney, told me that he thinks he understands the gospel in a way he never understood it before. And he's now sharing the gospel in a way he never had before. So we're, we're seeing some changes, and that's uh, uh, one of my areas of emphasis is to try to mentor 
and, and spend personal time with uh, these men. And that's the last thing that I'm really doing from a ministry perspective is I am mentoring individuals. I have these constellation of guys, primarily graduates of the Bible Institute and some other places that I meet regularly with. And um, often, I just ask them open-ended questions. And I just listen to what they say. And it's really amazing what people will tell you <laughs> if you show interest in them. And there's these windows of opportunity to have input into their life, their family, their marriage, uh, their ministry. Um, the final thing I do is I'm the team leader for our team in Cape Town. And I have uh, three other families that I'm responsible for. Um, and uh, it's uh, primarily shepherding and, and vision casting for, for them. But I don't do anything apart from my wife. And uh, she's going to tell you a little bit about her particular focus. Thank you. <laughs> um, can you hear better? Is that better? I'm not sure if it's on. Is it on? Okay. There you go. Um, so they, um, anyway, they have been there to, to visit us. I have the same um, heart for sharing God's word, teaching God's word, and discipling women as Tim does. Um, I do not have the theological degree that my husband does, so I don't have the same arenas to uh, teach and um, my primary um, ministry I see is supporting Tim and his teaching, um, supporting our team uh, there, and then having my own um, many opportunities for discipling women and teaching. Uh, but I don't have the clear-cut schedule going to the Bible Institute and teaching a class or um, having the pastor's reading group every Monday night out in the Gukulatu Township mine. 
ebbs and flows a lot more. It's more informal. I would long to have one regular group of African women that I could pour myself into and be in the word in a constant way. It just doesn't happen the same way. So I use opportunities as I can. Um, one, this is um, also in Gukuletu Township where Tim teaches. Um, I discovered in the one of the first years that we were there, so this picture's a little bit old, um, as he was on the one side of the wall teaching a small group, um, I had asked the pastor, um, Pastor Walter Nachua, who you had seen earlier, um, it seemed that there were some women who had gotten very excited about studying God's Word when I was in the township with some Bible Institute students in an outreach week. I was just helping them out. And these women were so excited because they had never had that experience before. So I offered to come, when Tim was teaching, to come out and sit on the other side of the wall with women in their community and his wife and daughter and whoever might want to come and we could have a women's time. And they were very excited. So it started with a small group Somewhere in the first couple of weeks together, I cannot tell you how it happened. All I know is that it happened. The words mercy seat came out of my mouth. We weren't actually studying about that. I'm not sure how it all came together. All I remember is that uh, Tandi and Toko, Tandi's the pastor's wife and her uh, daughter Toko, started getting very excited and um, speaking back and forth in Isinkosa, which is their native tongue. Um, we were speaking in English until that moment, and then they went off very excitedly, and I said, what's going on? And you know I can't understand what you're saying, and they said, those words, those words, um, say them again, say them again. I said, mercy seat, and they said, yes, yes, yes. We have been singing a song, a Tosa song, for generations in our Christian churches, in our churches. They've all been raised in so-called Christian churches, and there was a song that has those words. And we thought they were English, but we really didn't know how to say them. We didn't know how to pronounce them. And here you are saying them. And so after we got over that initial excitement, I said, well, do you know what that's talking about? No. They had no idea what it was talking about or how it fit with the song or anything. And I said, did you know that was in the Bible? No way. That's in the Bible? They said, yes. Would you like to find out for yourself? Would you like to read about it yourself? Could we do that? They had never had the opportunity to actually read the Bible themselves. They had never had a Bible study. They, their tradition, more often in an African context, is to come to church and you're preached at. Now, it depends on who that preacher is, but most preachers don't have any biblical training, as you heard from Tim earlier. So these are wonderful people who loved the Lord as they knew the Lord. The problem is they just didn't know much about the scriptures. So what a wide open door, huh? So that began a Bible study with them. And then over time, flash forward, I think, let's see if the next picture, okay, this is just a little picture. Years later, um, his wife, much, much had happened in her spiritual growth. And she was catching up with her husband who had become quite um, biblical and reformed. And as she said to me, I'm so excited. I'm a reformed woman. <laughs> she, and then she said, but what does that mean anyway? <laughs> These are great, great friends. They're wonderful. So 
she and some others, some are pastor's wives, some are a couple um, lay leaders in their women in their church that were um, really growing in their faith. Anyway, we started a little uh, Reformed Women's Fellowship that we, we would meet once a month at her house out in the townships. And, you know, you're working around children, you're working around working schedules. You, you know, it's, it's hard. It doesn't, it's not like, can we meet for coffee? You know, it's 45 minutes away. I can't go alone. We have to sync our schedules. And, but we started studying together, and we, would re, we began with a five-points uh, book, just um, Piper's, John Piper's Five Points of Calvinism. To kind of get started, it was short enough that we could go through in many months' time, a chapter a month, and it was wonderful and began a whole nother fellowship when we get back from this HMA, I'm hoping to resurrect that group. It has kind of died over time with working schedules, but it gives you, this is just to give you an idea of the different levels of spiritual need, different backgrounds. So some of the same women who were in that initial study were now in this study a number of years later, and I think that is just a great praise to the Lord that he has done such a work in their lives. On the other hand, I think the next one's me, um, the women at the Bible Institute are studying God's Word all day long. They're the residential students. They're much, it's a higher level. It's a, it's a college level. Um, and so the students there um, are filled up to here with studying and especially studying God's Word. They're not looking for another Bible study. They're all involved in local churches, but they love to come over to your home. They love to spend time together with faculty wives. And Seppo, in, um, I used her as an example. She's a graduate. She graduated about a year ago, came from a very traditional, African traditional religions background, um, where ancestor worship is very much part of the scheme. And even though her family would consider themselves Christians, it's a very different look at Christianity than what you and I know. And it's not a biblical Christianity. She came to faith and um, came out of the business world, left her work to attend the Bible Institute because she figured she'd heard about the Bible Institute and she knew nothing of the Bible or what it meant to be a Christian. So she thought, well, what better way could I learn? I'll I'll go to this Bible Institute. So she came, and she grew, and she was just like a, a sponge. She's a real learner, um, a diligent student. She has graduated and is now pursuing um, a Master's of Christian Education through London School of Theology. And part of that program is to be actively teaching. So she actually is up in upper Zambia in a rural, rural area now teaching at a Bible school herself and has a real heart to come back to South Africa and invest in areas of Christian education. But she has just been the poster child of someone who's come out of a traditional background and has seen the incredible um, change that the gospel of grace, the true gospel of Jesus Christ makes in your life all the way down to your toenails, and you can't go back to your old way of living. And so a lot of that means I really can't go back to my home village to live. It's really hard to be there during holiday times when I'm expected as a family member and as I think the oldest daughter to participate in all the rituals and ceremonies that are merit-making ceremonies to please the ancestors. So what's a cookout to you is an animal sacrifice 
displeasing the spirits of the ancestors. And it's as much idolatrous to her as other things would be to you. That's the culture. So we are so delighted that she's gone on with the Lord, but she, she has embodied and has helped us understand that oftentimes for Africans coming out of that background, for them to come to a biblical understanding of the, of the gospel and to come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's like a Muslim coming to faith. Or in our situation, it was like coming from Catholic roots, walking away from those Catholic roots as we came to know the Lord Jesus. So, um, or as a, perhaps an Orthodox Jewish person becoming a Christian. It's very dramatic, and they need lots of support. So I just wanted to give you a few examples of the types of arenas that I'm involved in, but also of the, the backgrounds, spiritual backgrounds and needs of the people that we're involved in. So I think that's all I have to say. Sorry, we're technologically challenged on this end of the light. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for sending us out and letting us be part of your missionary family. Uh, we have to raise an additional $1,700 per month while we're home. If you'd like to hear more about that, we'd love to talk to you. Uh, we have a uh, sign-up list for our, if you'd like to get our email um, prayer letters, um, please um, see that. And uh, thank you for letting us come and be with you. And I guess we probably have a few minutes if there are any questions we might be able to ask. Yes, we have... Um, we're an American mission agency. We're, we're the mission agency of the Presbyterian Church in America. And um, those who are on our team are American missionaries. Uh, we have uh, one family that's also teaching full-time at the Bible Institute. And then we have another family that's doing college ministry, kind of a, a RUF-like ministry at the, the University of Cape Town which is more or less the, the Harvard of Africa. And then we have a, a, single, a single gal who is doing township ministries, helping, uh, helping a church uh, as they uh, look to do children's ministry in schools and through, through the church in a township. What is, what is exciting for us as a mission, uh, we now have uh, an international director over Sub-Saharan Africa, basically my boss, who's a black Zimbabwean. And it's the first time MTW has had an international, um, an international other than an American, be um, um, a, a director. And it's just been wonderful for us because he's a godly man. He knows the continent. He knows the culture. He's full of energy and vision. And so we've been um, delighted to serve under him. But more or less, um, the direction of missions is for international teams, and MTW is looking at that as well. We now have a Malawian who is raising support in the U.S. to go, go back home to Malawi, um, which, is, which is exciting. What happens often is that um, Africans come back, come to the U.S. for training, and then they never go back home. And 
just an example of this, the Presbyterian Church in Uganda, over the course of 20, 30 years, they sent 18 men to the West for training, but only four of them came back. So we want to bring, we want to bring quality theological education to the continent to keep people on the continent, to get them trained in, in context, and to stay in the continent. Long answer from. Oh, well, um, it, here's the pattern. Uh, we, get a town, we get a township guy who comes and studies under us, either at the Bible Institute in the residential program or in the certificate program. And their theology begins to change, and then they go back to their church, and most times they empty their church. And the reason that happens is that their church is, is used to getting something fresh. They're used to prosperity gospel. And we're not training those guys that way. You know, we're, uh, in the video that you heard, uh, one, of the, one of the young men, he said two or three times that he's learned that the Bible's sufficient. That's what we're pounding into people. And we want to train them that they rely on the Word of God. So these people go back to their churches and people aren't hearing what they are used to. And so they end up starting all over. So what we're trying to do, uh, we have a vision as MTW missionaries of trying to find guys who will become Presbyterians and that we can, we can help them plant Reformed Covenantal Presbyterian churches and kind of skip that step of going back and emptying out your church and starting with a church plant as it is. But it's really hard to hit, it's really hard to transition a church to kind of where we're at theologically. Um, what you win somebody with, you win them too. And so these people, by and large, have been one with the prosperity gospel, and then when you pull the rug out from under them, um, the result isn't all that good. So it seems the better strategy is to start from scratch, to start planting churches, and that's what we're encouraging these guys to do. Just go back and win people, win people to the gospel and train them up from the ground up uh, in, in biblical Christianity. Just to add to that, what sounded like a rejection, I, I think I'm understanding from your question, that the Bible
No. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Jerry. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Now, apartheid was a system, a governmental system that South Africa was under until just 25 years ago. And what apartheid basically was, was separation of the races. So you had white people living with white people, going to white schools, riding white buses, going to white beaches. You had colored people, which is a mixed race, um, Malaysian roots intermarrying over three, four hundred years, um, not white nor black. Okay, that would be the the next layer of of sociological strata, and colored people associated with colored people in the same way. White people associated with white people, and then finally you had black Africans. So the way the population works today. About 8% white, 8% colored, or 10% colored, and 80% black, and about 2% Indian. And under apartheid, the whites, the whites were always on top. They were always the top of the heap. They had the best of everything. So they had the best housing, and unlike America, inner city was the best housing. So you had whites in the inner city, best housing, and then the next rung out would be the coloreds, and then finally out in the hinterlands would be the blacks. And essentially 25 years later after apartheid, the economic situation of the country has improved some. You have a little bit of emerging black middle class, but largely these stratas still exist. So for instance, in Cape Town, there's about 4 million people. About 2 million live in, live in the black townships. And one of the townships that I teach in regularly has a million people. And there's one view on the road where you're up a little high and you kind of look at the township and it's like, it's like an ocean of shacks as, as far as the eye can see. And it just kind of takes your breath away. Uh, but that, that kind of strata doesn't exist legally, but in practical terms, that's the way South Africa is today. It's very much, um, you know, a legacy of apartheid that continues. So for instance, in South Africa, you have the poorest educated blacks on the continent. You probably have the most educated white people in the continent, probably more educated than a lot of Europeans. But the black population under apartheid, they were limited to an eighth grade education. So that doesn't change in 25 years. So we're still dealing with a, a very um, undereducated black population. Okay. Yeah. So when you, when you, every town, every town of any size in South Africa has the same configuration. You know, you, you're driving in towards the city, and you get this layer of shacks on the outer, you know, the out where the blacks live, and then you come through the colored community, and then you have the whites where the whites live, and um, you know, it's it's just very predictable town to town. Now, the black townships are very um, unsafe. There's um, about 50% unemployment. There's, a, there's a, a ratio called the NEET ratio, N-E-E-T, not 
employed in education or training. Not employed in education or training. Basically, doing nothing. And in the age group from 20 to 29, it's 50%. And so you got 50% of 20 to 29. You think about the energy, <laughs> the energy level of, of people at that age. And they're not doing anything. And so you've got crime, uh, you, you've got drugs. Um, so these townships are, are, are really unsafe. And um, hence, Trez doesn't go in there alone. She'll, she'll go in with me. Um, but we, um, God's been gracious to us. We, we have not, we've not been attacked physically um, in the time going there. So, yeah. Hi, Pat. No, it's not impacting us. It's, um, uh, we were kind of surprised coming home. We've been, we've been here two months back in the States. And that's what everybody here is talking about South Africa. And it is, it is an issue for sure, but it's, it's almost like the bigger issues are the day-to-day -day crime, uh, you know, the, the taxi strikes, the, the the burning of railroad cars, you know, the, the murders, you know, that's, that seems to be the real day-to-day -day issue. Long-term, that has to get resolved, uh, but it seems unlikely at this point um, a Zimbabwean situation is going to result in South Africa. And in Zimbabwe, about 20 years ago, the government took all the white farms away from the white farmers. And Zimbabwe used to be the breadbasket of Africa. And uh, when they took the farms away from the people who knew how to farm and gave it to people who didn't know anything about farm, that was the beginning of the end economically for the country. So people are looking at that and saying, we don't want to go there, but yet we want to redistribute the land because you know, the 8% of the population being white that own about 70% of the land. And they're trying to, they're trying to do something about that. But, it hasn't impacted us. Okay, yeah. more um, apartheid 
there's a lot more issues here and they have um, more regular violence and dysfunction than the rest of society. But um, then there's other issues with the women that are in the political arena right now, redistributing the land without any payment to their clients. And those are different issues One more, then. Yeah. Um, right now, um, there's there are seven unreached people groups in South Africa. One of them is the Cape Colored Muslims. There's about a quarter of a million of them, and they're they're kind of in a section of, of Cape Town. By and large, Islam has not penetrated sub-Saharan Africa yet. Now, the Pew studies are saying that in the next 20 to 30 years, there are going to be more Muslims in sub-Saharan Africa than in North Africa. And in North Africa, actually North Africa and the Middle East. So that's expected to change. One of the things that MTW is doing as our, our new international director has kind of commissioned us to, to try to recruit um, individuals who will um, be missionaries to Muslims and get them in place in key areas in sub-Saharan Africa to kind of get ahead of that curve. Um, but we have not, that's kind of a new initiative that we haven't actually been able to execute just yet. So, you know, we're unfortunately waiting for the onslaught, but it hasn't, it hasn't arrived yet. You know, Muslim Islam doesn't fit really well with African culture, um, but as you know from what they're doing other places, they, they kind of buy their way in. Um, Saudi Arabian money coming in and buying their way into communities. So, well, I think we've used our time, and yeah. I'll turn it back to you. If it's okay, I'd love to close by praying for you and yeah. Thank you. Well, Lord our God, we have heard of your work, and we are excited about your word going forth. We pray that you would continue to strengthen Tim and Therese as they minister, as Tim teaches, uh, and especially as he teaches these pastors who will go out and will raise up other churches. We pray that your name would be raised high, that your glory would be extended uh, and magnified there. We pray that uh, you would have many uh, who are going out of the Bible Institute, who are teaching the word, and that your people are brought to yourself. Oh Lord, gather your elect uh, from among the nations. We pray that you would do that work there in South Africa. We pray for safety for Tim and Therese. We've heard of some of uh, the, the difficulties and, uh, and the threats that they face where they minister. Uh, yet, Lord, you have your people in lots of dangerous places, and you are the Lord who uh, sustains them and guards them. Lord, we pray that they would be steadfast and firm in their faith in you, that you would show yourself faithful. We pray that you would continue to give them safety, uh, safety, if you will, in body, but certainly that you would keep them in soul and keep them looking to you uh, for life and godliness. We pray that they would have a faith that is not uh, disappointed and a hope that will not disappoint in Christ Jesus. We pray that you would continue to make them firm in these things. We pray that you would use them uh, as they minister to the families that are there, the men and the women. Uh, that uh, in different areas in, in strata of the society there, 
uh, the gospel would be doing its work uh, of healing divisions and of, uh, of restoring sinners uh, to the Lord who is maker. Pray that you would do this and pray that you would glorify your name through them and through the ministry they have. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And, yeah, if you'd like to get our prayer updates, we, about every other month we send a, a prayer update. You can sign that, um, print your email and your name on that little tablet. And we've got lots of picture prayer cards. If you'd like to take a picture and stick it on your fridge, that will help you remember to pray for us. We appreciate it. We have lots of them. Thank you. <laughs>